knowing what you believe and why you believe it lies at the very heart of Christian experience, worship, and everyday living. The Bible's not about you. You're not David. Trouble in life is not Goliath. Jesus is going to be David in the shadow. Goliath is going to be sin and death. Who's that make you? Uh, and it doesn't make you the Israelites in the corner going, he's going to kill all of us. That's exactly who you are. What is your only comfort in life and in death? That I, with body and soul, life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Gospel is that God the Son freely agreed to die our death for us, to suffer our deserved condemnation and doom in our place. And he didn't just agree from eternity to do it, he actually did it. It is fatal, fatal for us to think that we can ever move on from the gospel. The great problem in the evangelical church today where the scripture is concerned is not the inerrancy of the Bible. The great problem in the evangelical church today is the sufficiency of scripture. We don't think it's sufficient to do what we have to do. So we have to wake up to what's happening and recognize that the problem really is our lack of theology. Hi, and welcome to Theology Gals. I'm Colleen Sharp, and um, my co-host is Angela. And we tonight are bringing you part two of the Federal Vision episode with Dewey Roberts. If you've not listened to part one, go back on our website and listen. I did need to um, do a little housekeeping, and then Angela and I wanted to talk about something before we go to part two. So we had some technical issues, and it's all long and complicated and podcasty stuff. But if you are a subscriber to this podcast, you may have to go back and resubscribe if you use iTunes. I'm not really sure on all the platforms how it'll be different, but check to make sure that you're still subscribed to the podcast so that you make sure that you get future episodes and are notified. And so we're trying to get all that straightened out. But also we just, we know that there was a lot of controversy surrounding part one and to the point that I actually put out a blog post, case closed. I think it's important for people to understand we're not just making stuff up and taking issue with something. Mm -hmm. We're actually taking the same stand that Reformed churches have. Right. We are aware that we are two ladies on the internet, but what our heart is, is to bring the decisions that have been made by the unified voice of the NAPARC denominations to our listeners in a way that they can understand. We, we are not um, attempting to say, this is Theology Gal's opinion. We are attempting to share the information that these are what the Reformed denominations have investigated and agree uh, is what the teachings are and agree that the outcome of the teachings are it's unorthodox it's contra-confessional. And um, as we've said before, some of the denominations did call these teachings heresy. And so I think it's important for people to understand that those study commissions, position papers, rulings by ecclesiastical bodies, 
those take months and months and um, thousands of hours of ordained men. These are educated men in theology who are ordained by their church to review many, many, many documents, writings, recordings, and they have all come to similar conclusions. And so there really is a unified voice coming out of the Reformed churches, and we believe and trust in what the leadership of our churches is telling us. Yeah, I've thought a lot about early church history this week, how when a when a heresy would creep up, they would do a church council, very similar to, you know, what we see with Presbytery. And it wasn't just one person, it wasn't the Pope deciding. It was a group of church leaders with ecclesiastical authority making judgments, saying things like Pelagianism is wrong, Arianism is wrong, not consistent with Scripture. And that is what has happened. The OPC, PCA, RPCNA, RCUS, I mean, URC, all of these churches which are part of NAPARC have come out and said federal vision is error and it is not consistent with Reformed confessions. And so we are not just coming out saying, you know, we think it's wrong and, you know, therefore should listen to us. But I think it's really important for anyone who's listening to this. I've heard things this week like, I don't understand what the big deal is, you know, that we're making too big of a deal out of it and things like that. And we are actually just trying to be consistent with what our own denominations have already said. The other thing is, too, we hear a lot of talk today about gospel issues. And we've said before on this podcast, the only thing that's a gospel issue is the gospel. Federal vision is a gospel issue because it is an attack on the gospel itself. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, it as we come across teachings like the federal vision that undermine the gospel, I think what has been really encouraging to us, though, to remember is that the Lord saves his people and he calls those to himself who are of his people. And, you know, I've just been thinking about and praying through Psalm 28 today a lot. And I'll just read um, the last couple of verses from that. The Lord is the strength of his people. He is the saving refuge of his anointed. Oh, save your people and bless your heritage. Be their shepherd and carry them forever. And I just love that. It's so comforting to me to just remember that the Lord saves his people and he's their shepherd and he carries them forever. I don't have to carry myself. And so, um, yeah, that's that's very that's very encouraging. I'm glad that you shared that, Angela. Well, we're going to go to our episode with Dewey. And and if you have any more questions from this episode, feel free to email us at theologygals at gmail.com. We'll probably bring Dewey back in the future to answer any lingering questions that remain after we're done with this series. So how is the federal vision view of baptism and the Lord's Supper different than what we, different than how the Westminster Standards um, defines them? The federal vision view of the sacraments is a view that goes back primarily, first of all, to Thomas Aquinas. You will find that a lot of these people in the federal vision uh, hold to 
the systematic theology of Thomas Aquinas, uh, who was one of the scholastic theologians before the Protestant Reformation. Uh, And uh, Thomas Aquinas tied the work of God to baptism. And I went through in my book to show how the views of what Peter Lightheart and the people in the Federal Vision say about baptism lines up with what Thomas Aquinas said, what uh, the Catholic Church therefore said in the Counter-Reformation when they were trying to respond to the Reformation and they came up with the Council of Trent. And they, the Roman Catholic Church went back to uh, Thomas Aquinas and they took his positions for the most part. Uh, in the Council of Trent. But then the same things were said by this early church heretic, Pelagius, that Augustine stood against. And that is, they tie all these things to baptism. That is, when you're baptized, you have new life, you have the Holy Spirit given to you, you are adopted into the family of God, uh, you have uh, all these various benefits that are bestowed upon you. And all of those people say the same thing about it. I could have put other groups in there to show the similarity, uh, but the point is made that their position is contrary to what the Confession of Faith says the, and what the Reformers believed. Uh, John Calvin was the primary author of a document called the Consensus Tigorinus, uh, and He's very careful in there to define what the sacraments do and cannot do. Uh, And his positions and the positions of the consensus Tigorinus as they were trying to bring some some unity among the reformers on the position of the sacraments, those positions are completely contrary to the federal vision. And those positions are the positions that became incorporated in the other great reformed creeds as well, so that we see the see baptism as a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace. We do not see baptism as bestowing and conferring the grace of the gospel in and of itself, whereas the federal vision people say that when you are baptized, all of these things are conferred upon you through your baptism. The reformed position would say concerning a person, he may have been saved before he was baptized, he may have been saved at his baptism, he may have been saved after his baptism, that uh, the baptism does not confer the grace of, bab- of that is symbolized upon the person. It simply symbolizes uh, outwardly what the work of God is inwardly. And so what I say is that, I've told a lot of people this, The federal vision position, just like the Roman Catholic Church, just like Thomas Aquinas and Pelagius, what they do is they substitute the sacraments for the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not the Spirit who does these things in their view. It is rather the sacraments. Baptism does this. Uh, And so it is a denial of the work of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. I've got a quote from your book that goes right along with that. You say, 
the federal vision is a misnomer. It is not a vision for covenant theology. It is a vision for sacramental theology. It is a view of the sacraments, which is nearly identical to the false views of the Roman Catholic Church. There would be far less confusion about this new heresy if it were called the sacramental vision. Absolutely. Then people would understand it uh, if it was called the sacramental vision. But because it's called by a name which really doesn't mean a lot to most people, they think, well, what does federal vision even mean? Uh, and so they can't get it. But if it was called sacramental vision, and then they started saying these things, people would understand immediately, oh, this is Roman Catholicism. Mm. Uh, this is Phariseeism. You know, the Pharisees had these same views that the Catholic Church later had. Uh, they thought the same things about works and ceremonies uh, that the Catholic Church believed in and uh, which the Federal Vision believes today. Um, the quote that I just read is from your chapter on um, the Federal Vision and Covenant Theology, and um, you talk about um, law gospel distinction and how that's something that we have in Reformed theology and um, where the Federal Vision goes wrong on law gospel distinction. And you also talk about how Reformed in classic historic Christian doctrine is bicovenantal, but Federal Vision is monocovenantal. Can you explain that difference a little bit to our listeners? And I'll, I'll let you know that we, we have uh, a lot of different listeners, some who are covenantal and who have studied covenant theology and some who haven't. So can you tell us a little bit about that difference? Well, first of all, all of God's relations with his creatures has to be through a covenant. He enters into that covenant with us as our sovereign, and he he makes the conditions for it. We don't enter into an agreement with him as an equal party. Uh, but all of his relations through, throughout our entire existence have been through covenant. Uh, and I take the position which I believe is very clear and very scriptural, and that is that uh, when God made a promise, or rather a threat of death to Adam and even the Garden of Eden, that in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. That the other side of that, because of the consistency and the unity of the being of God, the other side of that is that if they had not eaten from that tree, then they would have lived. Uh, you die if you do eat. You live if you do not eat. And so that was a covenant that he made with them, uh, wherein he laid out the stipulations. We call that the covenant of works. Uh, and in that covenant of works, uh, he said that if you do this, this is what the result will be. All right, we do not have a covenant of works that can accomplish salvation for us after the fall of mankind. The fall changed everything. Before the fall, when Adam and Eve were upright and holy and innocent, uh, God could come to them and give them a covenant of works. Uh, and he could say, if you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you will die. That changed when sin entered in because man is simply incapable of fulfilling that covenant. As one of the 
man, I've written another book on a great uh, Presbyterian minister named Samuel Davies, but uh, one of the statements that he made at one point dealing with this whole matter of the covenant of works is that uh, if um, partial obedience would be acceptable to God, uh, then disobedience would be acceptable to him. And if disobedience is acceptable to him, then complete disobedience would also be acceptable to him because there's no logical way to work it out any other way. That's why works salvation can never be true. It has to be totally of God's grace, not of works. But once the fall happened, man himself moved into a position where he could no longer uh, fulfill the covenant of works. So then from the fall to the end of time, we have what is called the covenant of grace. Uh, And so interestingly enough, that while the federal vision people want to try to say that they deny the covenant of works and say it was always a covenant of grace going all the way back in to the very time of creation. It's interesting that while they say that, on the other hand, they make their system into a covenant of works, which is impossible for us to fulfill. So uh, they deny the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden, but they have it for themselves today. Uh, So in reality, while they claim to be uh, mono-covenantal, that is, one covenant, that is, they say, the covenant of grace, all the way back into the Garden of Eden, in their practice, they're acknowledging the fact that there are two covenants, the covenant of grace and the covenant of works, because their system is built on the covenant of works. Uh, What we say is there was the covenant of works in the Garden of Eden before the fall, and once the fall took place, then the cross of Christ in the the first announcement of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 took place. Uh, And thereafter, it's only by the covenant of grace uh, that we can be saved. Uh, And so in reality, I don't know of anybody who holds consistently to the view of mono-covenantalism, though that's the stated position of the Federal Vision people, because the covenant of works and the covenant of grace Law and works is so much a part of our basic natures. We're always going to have to have both of those in our system. Did I answer everything you wanted on that? Yes, thank you. Um, It's just really stood out to me reading your book. Coming to Reformed theology myself, um, I didn't grow up in a Reformed tradition. And so um, learning about Reformed theology, one of the most amazing doctrines and meaningful to me is the law-gospel distinction, and that just really opened up a whole world to me of uh, understanding the Scripture better and understanding the real grace given to me in the gospel. And so it was a big shocker to me to see (laughs) some of these quotes in here. I want to read one you've got in your book. Um, This is Steve Schlischel. He's a federal visionist. He says, The law-gospel dichotomy is a false one. It is unbiblical. It is a result of asking and demanding that Scripture answer the wrong questions. 
Can you tell us why law gospel distinction is important to Reformed theology and how it plays out um, in federal vision that they don't have a law gospel distinction? Well, you know, once again, I would say that they do have a law gospel distinction, though they don't realize it. They don't have the right law gospel distinction. Uh, But on the one hand, they want to say, just like I said about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, they want to say that they are, uh, everything has always been under the covenant of grace, but they turn it into covenant of works. Uh, The the real question uh, for most people comes with respect to the, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments and the other laws that are there, uh, which Paul in the New Testament clearly develops and shows that the the uh, law of Moses did not change the basic covenant that God had declared uh, through Abraham prior to Moses, uh, and that we are saved on the basis of that promise to Abraham which goes all the way back to the promise made to Adam as well uh, in the Garden of Eden after he fell. Uh, And what happens is that either we believe in the law gospel distinction or we're going to live it out uh, whether we realize it or not. But when you come to the law in the Ten Commandments, there are three uses of the law. That is, it is a a a revelation of the character of God. Uh, It is a rule for obedience. And all of a sudden I'm going blank and I'm forgetting the one of you theology gals can help me here on the three uses of the law. Uh, Drives us to Christ. Okay. All right. Okay. So it drives us to Christ. All right. Uh, You know, what happens is that a lot of people come to uh, the, law and they make it into a works salvation scheme for themselves. Whereas for a Christian, it is not a works scheme of salvation. And that's what Paul is meaning in Galatians, uh, that it it did not change things for us, but it it was a schoolmaster to drive us to Christ. But it it did not change the covenant that had previously been made to Abraham. Uh, And uh, yet, the federal vision people do change it because they make it into a scheme of works salvation. Uh, and so uh, the great question of whether or not uh, the law of God was a republication of the law that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, uh, I think the right answer to that is that it depends upon the person. You know, in one sense, that is that uh, if if we come to the law and we think that we can earn our salvation through it, then it becomes a covenant of works to us. But if we come to the law and realize that it's the rule for our obedience, but that we were saved by that covenant that God has made prior to that time in Adam and Abraham, and particularly Abraham, as he announced it clearly there, then it's not a scheme of work salvation for us. It, at that point, becomes uh, simply the responsibility that we have as people who love the Lord Jesus Christ for his salvation he's given to us, and we live at our lives according to these rules that God has given to us. Though we do not do so perfectly, 
but yet we live it out according to that. One of the questions that that um, some of the gals had asked is we've really been talking about federal vision within confessional reformed churches, but are there versions of it within Baptist churches? Oh, absolutely. You know, sometimes people who hold to believers' baptism, they think that they escape this problem. Uh, I would say that that uh, the problem is just as prevalent uh, in believers' baptism circles uh, as in uh, churches which practice infant baptism and for this reason, that I know of so many people who were baptized as an adult or a, a later teenager or whatever, and if you ask them about their salvation, first the first thing they're going to tell you is, well, I was baptized on such and such a day, as though that baptism conveyed all this, conveyed all this stuff to them. So they have a problem in the Baptist churches, and historically, it's been proven out to be true that this error uh, of legalism has been just as prevalent among Baptist churches as it has among Presbyterian churches. Uh, so you do not escape the problem simply by becoming a Baptist. The problem is a problem of legalism and thinking that we can earn our salvation through our works. and. Since the federal vision incorporates both moral works of righteousness and ceremonial works of righteousness, and baptism is a ceremony instituted by Christ, a sacrament, therefore we can say that people who are baptized either as infants or adults, either way, can end up having the same problem uh, concerning that ceremony that, that uh, incorporated them visibly into the body of Christ. It just plays out differently. It, yeah, it plays out differently because people can misunderstand what we mean by baptism. And in my book, I make the point that, well, I'll go in there if there's a question about it but relative to baptism. Let me say this. People can misunderstand what Presbyterians are doing in infant baptism and think that we are thinking that salvation is automatically bestowed on every mm. person who is baptized. And, and that's not what the Reformed creeds have said, and that's not what evangelical Presbyterians believe. Uh, and I certainly never have held that and do not hold to that. Uh, but people can make adult baptism into just as much of a sacramental problem, thinking, well, if I'm just baptized, then I'm going to be right with God. No, you're going to be right with God when you come to saving faith in Christ, uh, and not before then or until then. Uh, so they can make it into a sacramental problem as well. One of the things you talk about in the book is theonomy. Can you um, explain the connection between federal vision and theonomy? Well, first of all, most of the people who are uh, were really laying the groundwork for the federal vision, I think almost every one of them, were people who uh, were theonomist. Some of the people who are being brought into the movement today may not be theonomist, uh, but their view of federal vision is very theonomic nonetheless. Uh, and, you know, this was the, a chapter that I had to work very hard on because I had a great deal of respect in one sense for Greg Bonson, though he was 
an emotionally immature person. He was a great uh, thinker. Uh, and I did not find that he deviated at any point from Reformed soteriology, unlike the Federal Vision people do. Uh, but I think that there were elements of his theonomic system that set this movement in place uh, because he set up this idea that we could enforce the laws upon society and then change everything and make our nation into a great Christian nation. And what has happened is that they've taken that idea for society and transferred it into the church and said, well, we can have this idea and we can enforce these rules and regulations upon people and we're going to make everybody into a Christian, therefore. Uh, and so it's a very similar idea uh, that they have done in that way. And it's a failed and a flawed idea because what happens is that they forget about the work of the Holy Spirit and they forget about uh, the inner work in the heart of man. Uh, I, in my book, as both of you have seen, Colleen and Angela, I deal an awful lot about what is called subjective grace, which a lot of times people haven't heard about that. Objective grace are, can, is all of those things that Christ did objectively for our salvation, living a perfect life in our behalf, going to the cross and dying for us, imputing his righteousness to us, which is received by faith. But there's more than that that's involved in the gospel. And, of course, that gets back to the whole matter of regeneration and everything that flows from that. The Holy Spirit is involved in that work of regeneration. So theonomy was putting the emphasis upon the outward uh, and denying the necessity of the inward. I couldn't find a place in Greg Bonson's book where he made the statement that he often made in our classes, where he would say, we are justified by faith and sanctified by the law. Uh, and I would disagree with that. We are sanctified by the Spirit. We are not sanctified by the law. Uh, we are sanctified according to the standards of the law, but it has to be through the work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I think that the federal vision people and the theonomy people forgot about the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the heart of believers. Uh, and that's and they substituted for it all of these outward things instead. And that's how they ended up in this legalism. One of the, one of the things that, and this is just kind of a, a side question that somebody wanted me to ask you, is do they believe that baptism is necessary for salvation? In other words, could somebody, you know, have a deathbed conversion and not um, be baptized and, and have salvation? Uh, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I have the answer to that, but I, I will say that uh, kind of along with that question is the idea or the question, do they believe in baptismal regeneration? And I go into that in my book, uh, and there are two strains of baptismal regeneration. The one is that it you're regenerated only in the sense that you are made a formal member of the church of Christ. The other is you're regenerated in that formal sense and also in the informal sense. 
And of course, the second one is almost impossible to hold to in any kind of consistent way, because if that was the case, then if you get everything that Christ has to give to you, then everybody would end up being saved, you know, just by being baptized. But they hold to a form of baptismal regeneration, which means that they would probably have a hard time saying uh, they would have to hold it as something that is very, very, very exceptional, uh, very unusual for a person to be saved without being baptized. Everything begins with baptism for them. I am wondering, as we're talking about all of these federal vision doctrines, and it is just very confusing. There's so many moving parts, uh, so many moving definitions. I think Colleen and I see it play out often in conversations in Reformed groups where folks will ask, you know, what do you think of this writer? And then someone will come along and say, don't read writings by that person. Um, that's a federal visionist, and you can get uh, better theology elsewhere. And then usually someone comes along and says, well, no one out there is saying the kinds of things that this person is saying about culture or about this or about that. And so I know he's got some problems, but um, I still like to read this person's writings. I'm just sort of wondering, as a matter of wisdom, because you're an expert on this, you know, in the Theology Gals group, we don't allow federal vision, federal visionists to be recommended at all. And um, I'm wondering if you recommend to the average person out there, um, go on and read their writings and use discernment, or if this is really bad enough, we need to avoid their writings altogether. Yeah, Angela, great question. You know, first of all, there are very few people who can uh, read somebody that has heretical views and not be tainted by it in some degree. Uh, and so for the most part, it's best to um, leave that to somebody else who is more spiritually mature and has studied more and is more of an expert in theology. Uh, so that you, you let them read those things because all of the things that the people would say that they benefit from this person for is intertwined with their heretical and false views in other places. And it's very hard to pick out those bad things, remove this sentence, keep that sentence, uh, take these three sentences out of this paragraph, but keep the rest of it. That's difficult. <laughs> yeah. uh, and, uh, and so most people simply cannot do that. And they're not able to engage in the kind of critical thinking that is necessary. Uh, for instance, I know that the man named Arius in the early church uh, is taught a view of the person of Christ that is heretical, uh, and I would myself have a problem with reading some of it. I wouldn't read it for devotions, but I've never read Arius, and I don't feel like I need to. Uh, I feel like that I know enough about what he taught to know that, that that was heresy concerning the person of Christ, and I don't need to go there, and about the doctrine of the Trinity. And there are many other things that are that way. It's very hard to put your finger too close to the fire without it getting burned. Uh, and so I would recommend, for the most part, 
that people stay away from this stuff. I've got to throw this in. Interestingly enough, I know that the Federal Vision people have encouraged all their people not to read my book. <laughs> so <laughs> I think that's funny. That that is funny. I wonder what they're afraid of. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Um, I'm I'm glad you said that about avoiding those authors, because that is a position that we have taken in the Theology Gals Facebook group. And one of the reasons is we have a lot of gals that are new to studying theology. And so even there was a somebody, a CREC person, a Federal Vision person, and somebody said, but this book, it doesn't, it, it doesn't deal with that stuff. But I think that these beliefs can come out even in practice books on practical topics. Absolutely. I could show you in just about any book where they have made a statement that is erroneous or heretical or contrary uh, to the Christian faith. Uh, As I've looked at their literature, uh, I see it coming out in a lot of different ways, even in what are considered their practical books. So even books on parenting and um, being a wife and some of those sorts of books, you're going to find aspects of, of this theology. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, you, you will find it in all of their writings. It's, it's not something, it is a part of them. Uh, and I know that people say, well, they're not really, there's no one else that's dealing with society and the uh, things that, are part of you see that's that gets into where the theonomy and the the federal vision began to overlap because theonomy was more concerned with society, federal vision is more concerned with the church, but those things overlap when you start moving church people into the realm of how we transform society through uh, theonomy and the laws and everything else. Uh, you, you find that in NT right. He gets into that stuff. I, I've seen places where he slides from a statement about baptism and the next sentence right over into this idea that the, the real thing about salvation is not personal in nature, but it's what is being done in society and the world and how it's being transformed. So he denies personal salvation through the salvation of the, the whole cosmos. So you see that in all of their writings. I have received a few messages from women who say, who say, there's federal vision in my church and I don't know what to do. Do you have any advice or encouragement for somebody who is realizing this stuff is in their confessional reformed church? Well, first of all, if it is being taught from the pulpit by the pastor, then I would say don't just leave, but run away from there because that is uh, something that is going to do great danger to your soul if you stay there. Uh, And uh, if it's among people in the church, uh, then I would simply address that uh, to the uh, session and let them uh, deal with the the issue and bring it up that way as a concern that you have about the things that are being taught. I would imagine that when they say that there's federal vision in my church, they're talking about people teaching these doctrines or people bouting it off in Sunday school classes or in some other forum like that. Yes, that's exactly what it is. Yes. So 
yeah, if you're an evangelical Christian, you cannot remain under the federal vision theology. It is heretical and it will uh, dwindle your soul and your spirit. I've had too many people who have contacted me over the past several years, for, really for the past decade. Uh, and uh, I have a, an email from many years ago from a lady who was in Steve Wilkins Church in Monroe, Louisiana. And uh, she told me that sitting under his preaching became so oppressive because she was not getting the gospel. Uh, and that's what people are going to find if they stay into that. It's going to oppress their souls. I would imagine that this this teaching does uh, just violence to a believer's assurance. Absolutely. You know, that's the one thing. One of the chapters that I deal with is on assurance of salvation. And I point out that the federal vision people can never come down on the side of saying there is assurance of salvation. They make light of it. They ridicule and reject the reformed position on it and people who hold to it. But then in the end, their view of assurance of salvation is if you've been baptized, you've got that assurance already. Well, what kind of assurance is that? There are a lot of people that have been baptized and a lot of those baptized people uh, have ended up uh, in eternal destruction because not all baptized souls will go to heaven any more than circumcised. Uh, And so that's no assurance at all. Right. So it puts the believer's assurance squarely on their own shoulders um, through that covenant keeping. Yes. Yes, it does. Uh, And see, it always comes back to this form of work salvation. They answer every particular soteriological question. That is, you're elect as a result of your baptism. Well, how do you stay in that elect standing? Well, you have to persevere by your own efforts. And if you persevere to the end, that you, you, you remain in the elect body of God. Everything ends up coming back to that great point that is wrong. Of It's up to you to do this. And it's just the opposite of the gospel. So that would be very oppressive for a believer to go through that. Well, we have ladies um, often in our group who are looking for a new church and their family is visiting churches. Do you have any advice for um, families looking for a church on any kinds of questions that they could ask um, to determine if the pastor or the elders have federal vision leanings, especially since a lot of folks deny the terminology? Well, you you know, I would do this. I think, first of all, I think a person is going to be better prepared uh, to ask those questions. The questions can be kind of unlimited that you might need to ask, depending upon what is out there. Mm -hmm. A person is going to be better prepared if they sit down and read my book first. uh, Mm -hmm. And they go and they ask because... I would want to ask the pastor, well, what do you believe about the assurance of salvation? What do you believe about election? Do you believe in this thing that when you're baptized, you're elected into the family of God? What about final justification? 
And, and you want to be prepared to ask those questions and to have a framework from which to work. Uh, and what I've done in my book is that I've, I have the quotes from the various Federal Vision people, but then I contrast that with the scriptures, with reformed creeds, and with the uh, historic Christian faith, and have quotes from all of those people to show the contrast between the federal vision on the one hand and historic Christianity uh, as expressed through the great commentators of Scripture, the great historical theology, uh, and uh, uh, the Reformed creeds. So a person, it's kind of hard to give one key to a person and say, well, if you hear this, but I can say this, if you if you see them making an overemphasis on the sacraments and talking about all the things that come about and accrue because you've received these sacraments and how all of these things are working within you because of the sacraments, that's a clear clue right there. Or if, if you do not hear them preaching clearly the cross of Christ as the means of your salvation. You need to uh, uh, run away from them at that point because the gospel uh, is the only reason for us to be able to uh, gather together as a flock of God's people. Amen. Well, I think we've just barely scratch the surface and have enough um, <laughs> enough here for two episodes. And I, w- I want to encourage all of our listeners to go and and purchase uh, the book because that it, it's there's so much to it. There's so much we mm-hmm. didn't even get to, and it's going to be a a great resource for and very thorough. The book is very mm-hmm. thorough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for I- understanding it. I really just wanted to take the opportunity, Pastor, to tell you thank you for the work that you did in working through all of these doctrines in such a systematic way and just all of the work to refute this false teaching and to expose it in in the PCA. I know that's um, your church, but, you know, in the broader Reformed world um, where this is something that needs to be exposed, I know that it took many, many, many countless hours to do this work. And I know that there are folks out there who think, um, yeah, if I do anything about this, nothing's going to come of it. So I just want to tell you, thank you for, um, for this book and for doing the work. And I see that as a gift to the church. So thank you. Can I say something about how someone would purchase this book? Sure, please do. Yeah. And I wanted to make an offer here. Uh, we I'll, did. I'll, anybody else who wanted to purchase the book, uh, I, I was thinking about that, and I'm going to make this offer, which uh, is um, uh, lower than I've offered it to uh, anybody else. I'm going to do this. Uh, I will offer the book. It's a hardback book, 400 pages. I'll offer it for $10 plus $4 shipping and handling, $14 total. It, it takes that $4 for me to, to mail it uh, and to send it out. That's to anybody in the U.S. I can't make that offer to somebody in Germany, you know. Uh, but anybody in the U.S., 
uh, I can send it to them for $14. Uh, but if somebody overseas wants the book, I'll sell it to them for $10 plus whatever the postage is to send it over there. Great. And you can give me a link on where um, they can go and order. Yeah. And also they can send me an email uh, and um, that would be to drob9944 at aol.com. That is D as in Delta, R-O-B as in Bravo, 9944 at aol.com. If they send me an email, I will tell them they can get that book on Amazon or through my website. Uh, and uh, if they, I'm going to have to lead some people through because I've got it set up on my website that it'll cost more than that. So I'm going to make, I'm making a special offer and I've got to figure out how I'm going to work that out. But I, Well, I, thank I, you. Right. And you can let me know and we can put that in the episode notes, information okay. about that in the episode notes. That's an amazing and very generous deal for this book. I mean, this, this book is one that I'm going to, that's going to stay on my shelf that I'll be pulling off and referring to. It's not just great for reading through and understanding it. It's also a great resource just to have. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you so much. So, so much for coming on. We will have links in the episode notes and I'll get information from, from Dewey on what to do for the deal that he's offered and put that on our webpage and in the podcast episode notes. And we will see you next week.